Can we give a round of applause to these kids? And you may be wondering what is just happening. And the reason why we decided to do this this morning is because the text that we're going to look at is a text that we typically do on Palm Sunday uh, because we're kind of gone through Luke and this is where we are. But if we only had the Luke's version, that would not be Palm Sunday. It would be Cloak Sunday. And so we thought to kind of help us to kind of get into the mode of what this Sunday was like, that we would start as we sometimes do on Palm Sunday with having kids come down and drop something off. Uh, So these are our quote cloaks, if you will. It's the best we could come up with. And I think it looks great um, as this kind of reminder of exactly what this uh, day would have looked like for Jesus as he um, begins to finally come into Jerusalem. Now, before I read the text today that will speak to this, I want to just say two quick things. First of all, I also want uh, to say what a great privilege it is to have our brothers from uh, Brazil here today and what a gift that is. One of the great things uh, I think about Zionsville Presbyterian Church is how connected we are with the church universal. Um, And I did have the great privilege several years ago now to go to Brazil to see the work that God was doing there through, um, um, through the church and what a gift it was. So I would certainly you know, encourage you, if you have any desire to see uh, what is happening, what God is doing, um, that going to Brazil um, um, is a great opportunity to be able to do that. And it certainly transforms how you hear things in the news when we hear things about Brazil, which we actually hear here a decent amount. Um, it is actually fascinating to know and to have a little bit more of an insider view and to be able to know even better how to pray. So thank you for being here. Uh, it is a long trip. Uh, and so thank you. Uh, and if you fall asleep, it's okay. So I also want to say this, just a reminder, the odds of me texting you all anything for assistance is almost nil. So I know this week, many of you got texts from quote, uh, Pastor Jerry saying, I needed your assistance. I don't need your help. That said, I will say this. So anytime you receive something and it seems a little bit weird, it probably is. So please do reach out to me and make sure because spam is everywhere. That said, let me say this. I'm always amazed at how many of you respond and ask me whether or not I really need help. Uh, It's actually very encouraging. Uh, So I hope that none of you get bamboozled by any of these texts or emails at the same time. um, um, Thank you for those of you who uh, texted me or emailed me and said, hey, is this real? You know, and if it is, I'm more than happy to help you. So thank you uh, for that. But please do uh, be careful. All right. So we are looking today at Luke chapter 19 verses 28 through 48. And this will take us uh, into Jerusalem. We've been going through chapters 11 through 19 as Jesus has been making his way to Jerusalem. And now uh, in this passage, we will finally Arrive. And so with that, I invite you to hear these words. After he, being Jesus, had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And when he had come near Bethpage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. 
untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Just say this, the Lord needs it. So they were sent, departed, and found it as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord needs it. And then they brought it to Jesus. And after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. As he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. Now, as he was approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, order your disciples to stop. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. As he came near and saw the city, he wept over it saying, if you, even you had only recognized on this day, the things that make for peace, But now they are hidden from your eyes. Indeed, the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up ramparts around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They will crush you to the ground, you and your children with you. And they will not leave within you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. Then he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling things there. And he said, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And every day he was teaching in the temple. The chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people kept looking for a way to kill him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were spellbound by what they heard." Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, we do pray that you would be with us this morning on this non-Palm Sunday, Palm Sunday. That for some reason, Lord, because we are doing this not the Sunday before Easter or because of the fact that we are including much more in the passage than what we normally do, that you might show us something new. That this well-worn trail and well-worn passage might be refreshed. That we would recognize you. And I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen and amen. All right, so our passage today starts like this after Jesus had said this he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem now we've been going through Luke and so slowly but surely we know those of us who were here last Sunday what this means after he said what after he talked about this parable remember the parable of the nobleman the parable of the 10 slaves and the focusing on three of those 
And after he said, this nobleman, bring those here whom I will then slaughter who did not want me to rule over them. Last Sunday, as we talked about this, we mentioned the fact that this, of course, is a very difficult passage for us to understand exactly how to read it. I, I do think, though, that this week, I just want to kind of briefly uh, refer back to it because I, I, I think maybe it's helpful for us to understand what happened last week by what we're seeing this particular Sunday. We remember that uh, it started by the disciples this Sunday saying, blessed is the king. So we begin to wonder, well, who was this nobleman? We remember the nobleman from last week went to go receive royal power. And so it helps us to see that perhaps that really was a good nobleman. As we remember this, that it was the one who now they are saying, this is the king. What we also, of course, see is that there were those people who did not want to be ruled by him. Remember what we said, that those were the ones who Jesus said, well, bring them before me, excuse me, the nobleman said, bring them before me so that I can see them slaughtered in front of me. But today, what we remember, of course, is that the people in Jerusalem will not ultimately recognize Jesus, that he is going to the cross and that he is the one who will be slaughtered. See, this is where Jesus, even if he is supposed to be like the nobleman from the parable, this is where he begins to differentiate himself. This is a different kind of king, a different kind of kingdom, because it is one in which he himself is slaughtered on our behalf. And then we get to this particular passage. Now, I don't know about you, but I've talked about this a lot and I can remember it as a child, of course, but it's always just been a little bit of a weird story, especially the beginning of it. It's always kind of strange around how these disciples are told by Jesus to go get the donkey and even the fact that the gospel writers all seem to want to talk about it. It all seems very strange, right? I mean, Jesus could have just said, okay, let's go in. We're going to go ahead and just grab this donkey or we're going to pay for this donkey, whatever. But that's not what happens, of course, right? He, he has all this weird detail and he says, okay, well, you just go and, and you find this donkey. And, and if someone says, hey, why are you taking that donkey? Just say, hey, you know what? The Lord needs it. And, and don't even worry about it. They're going to just let you take the donkey. It's just kind of weird, but this week, again, because of the passage last week, I did appreciate one thing more about this, which is that it's clear that the disciples here, at least in this moment, they simply know who the ruler is, a.k.a. Jesus, and they simply obey. We don't hear them asking a lot of questions. They just, it seems, obey. Tim Keller, as he's looking uh, at this story, he, he talks, he has his own analogy. He says he, has a, he had a 10-year-old son and his 10-year-old son, maybe you have a 10-year-old like this or had a child like this who, who uh, whenever um, Tim would say to his son, hey, I want you to do this, um, he would uh, do it as long as he could understand why. So he'd want to know why. Well, tell me why exactly I need to do this. And if, if then I, I can understand, then I will do it. And, and, and Keller said, the thing is, that's not actually obedience. That's agreement. And there's a big difference between agreement and obedience. 
And there are times, it seems to me, when we are following Jesus, of course, if we really trust that he is the ruler, there are times when we just simply need to obey, not to come to an agreement, but to obey, even when we do not fully understand why, even if we do not fully understand it. Now, please hear me. This does not mean that we can never ask God why. That's not what I'm suggesting. But it is to say this, as we watch these disciples, they simply obey what Jesus has told them and be because of that, they then experience the power of Jesus in a way that they never would have had they had to kind of come to an agreement and make sure that it all made sense to them. They simply obeyed, and because of that, they experienced Jesus in a wholly different way. So they begin to go and they get this donkey, of course, and as you know, they, they bring this donkey and, and, and Jesus kind of hops on and they begin to walk toward Jerusalem. Luke says this, Luke says that a multitude of disciples began to say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Now, we've been going through Luke for about a year and a half now, so I, I get it if you don't completely remember this, but but when you think about a multitude and you think about them saying something like, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven, does it remind you of anything that you may have heard, let's say about, I don't know, 15 or 16 months ago? Jesus' birth, a multitude of Angels who were saying, right, blessed is the king, you know, blessed on high, you know, peace on earth, all of that. And so you have, and it's, this is why it's so great to kind of go through these things. You have what is this kind of bookend, that Luke is bookending this story in such a beautiful way because you had the angels, remember, and they are, test, they, are, they, are, they are proclaiming that this is what's going to happen. I know it just looks like a little baby and, 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 and to the shepherds, you haven't even met this baby yet, but we're here to tell you, this is what this baby's going to bring. It's going to be this great peace. Then you have this life of Jesus. And after three years of the disciples kind of being with them, all of a sudden you have them testifying to the fact that this has actually happened. It's this great sense that you had, you know, uh, these angels saying it. And now after three years, it has finally sunk into the disciples that at least for this moment, yes, I know the disciples will fall away, but they come back. Don't lose hope, except for Judas. The rest of them come back and they're sitting there and they are testifying. What they're testifying is this, that every time that Jesus spoke words of grace, every time that he forgave their sins, every time that he healed somebody of their lameness or their blindness or their leprosy, every time, whenever he brought Lazarus back from the dead, every time that they, he enveloped someone in love who had been an outcast, every time these were markers of the peace that the angels had proclaimed and that now 33 years later the disciples have actually experienced it and seen it's this beautiful bookend here at the end of Jesus's life to what happened at the very beginning there's a beauty to the way that Luke describes what is happening but the Pharisees, of course, they are not all that keen on this. Now, once again, when it comes to Luke, we know that Luke kind of gives a mixed review 
of the Pharisees. Some of the other gospels, it seems like it's all bad, but, but Luke kind of gives a better sense, I would say, as to that the fact that these Pharisees, sometimes they're going down the wrong path, but sometimes they are earnest. And I think that we see this just in one line, right? We're only told that they say one line. This is in fact, um, yeah, I think this is true. The last time we see the Pharisees in the gospel of Luke. Did you hear what they said? They said this, they begin like this, teacher, which is this great term of respect, right? It's this great sense of, okay, teacher, so this is a good thing. It makes us feel good about these Pharisees. Okay, teacher. But then, of course, they go on. Order your disciples to stop. Well, that seems a little bit less like they're actually following Jesus and more like they're saying, your disciples. So how are we to understand these Pharisees? I will tell you this. It seems to me that one of the reasons why I love Pharisees, other than the fact that they're religious leaders, and you always have to pull for those if you're a religious leader yourself, is that I think that it is likely that all of us have this kind of pharisaical part of us. We have those parts that quite honestly are trusting and long to trust and long to have Jesus be our teacher, our ruler, our savior. But we also, if we are so honest, we're not sure that we want to be fully committed to this. I think probably the Pharisees, perhaps, I don't know. This is all speculation. We don't really know. I think they are though probably the smartest of the lot. Because they realize, of course, you know, that as you get into Jerusalem, if you keep saying, blessed is the king, do you know what kings don't like? Kings don't like to hear other people praising other kings. So the Pharisees have their finger on the pulse. They know this is not going to end well, which means if it doesn't end well for Jesus, and if they are seen as following this Jesus, it likely does not end well for them either. And I would suggest that all of us tend to feel this pull at times. We both want to follow Jesus, but we don't know if we're willing to actually give it our all. And so we have this pharisaical warring that goes on so often within our own hearts. Jesus responds in a very simple way. He simply says that if these are silent, the stones would shout out. Now, let me remind you yet once again, as you go back to Luke 3, 8, John the Baptist, uh, maybe you remember this. John the Baptist, as he's looking out to the crowds, he, he's trying to humble them and he says, look, you know what, that, that, if, that if God wanted to, he could kind of have these stones, from these stones, he could raise up children of Abraham. And what Jesus is reminding them of again is this, that God does not actually need us. Now, please hear me. That doesn't mean that God doesn't long for us, that God isn't passionate about us, that God does not love us. But as God, God is wholly different than us. 
So there is a humility that comes out of this line that even if we don't give praise, that guess what? Nature will, these stones will come to life. It is also this beautiful reminder to us that creation, that we are a part of creation, that we are called to care for this creation because it also sings of the glory of God, that sunset that sparkles, that sunset or that sunrise maybe in the morning that causes your heart to kind of explode with joy as you see this beauty, that, that walk in the, in the woods where you can begin to feel kind of this, this new breath inside of you. Creation is there in order to point to the Almighty. And if we do not proclaim, if we do not give praise, Creation will continue to give praise to God. Now, typically on a Palm Sunday, this is where we end it. But because we gotta we gotta get further down the road, we included these subsequent verses this week. And for me, at least, it's been very illuminating to begin to see what happens right after that. Typically, we divide it. Usually, we would go from this. Maybe we go to a Maundy Thursday or a Good Friday. Or maybe most, especially churches in America, it seems, you just go right to Easter. You go right from the celebration to another celebration. And I think this skews scripture and our faith. Luke tells us that after the parade, maybe even during the parade, it's hard to know, Jesus gets a glimpse of Jerusalem. And when he does so, he begins to weep. He begins to weep. He's weeping in part because he knows that they do not recognize him. Most commentators think this is likely pointing to what happens a few decades later in uh, AD 70, whenever Jerusalem is sacked and the temple is destroyed. Jesus seems to be describing this. But what we know, of course, is that ultimately what Jesus is upset about is not the stones it is the fact that the people that he loves desperately do not recognize him, nor do they recognize the peace that he is trying to bring to them. We recognize, as we see Jesus weeping as well, this reminder once again of his absolute humanity. As I've said so many times, we do Jesus a grave injustice when we do not allow him to be fully human. Jesus is about, and he knows it, to endure rejection, suffering, death, and all of these things, as he sees Jerusalem and knows that this is where he is headed, all of these things now begin to well up in his body and his eyes as these tears begin to pour out and to help us to see where he is. 
And what is fascinating when we get to bring all of this scripture passage together is that we bring the parade, we bring the joy, we bring the celebration, and we nestle it right next to the pain and the tears. And if you continue on, as we see in the temple, the anger and perhaps even the rage, all of that is together. Here as Jesus looks at Jerusalem, he does what we oftentimes call a lament. Laments are all throughout scripture. The Old Testament is full of laments, lamentations. We have a whole book called Lamentations. And I like as Fred Craddock looks at this particular lament, the way that he defines it. Here's what Craddock says. He says, a lament is a voice of love and profound caring a vision of what could have been and of grief over its loss, of tough hope painfully releasing the object of its hope, of personal responsibility and frustration, of sorrow and anger mixed, of accepted loss, but with energy enough to go on. Because we so often divide, perhaps unnaturally, this passage, it easily begins to give us a false sense of what the life of Jesus was like and certainly a false sense of what our faith is actually like. Christians far too often feel an immense amount of pressure to simply come out of a place of joy and hope and happiness, and smiles, and peace, and believe we have this pressure at times to say this is the face that we are supposed to have. This is how our faith is supposed to look like. If we are following Jesus, then this is what will always be all around us. And so we begin to disconnect if, at, at times. We begin to disconnect what is, quite honestly, much of our reality, which is pain or anger or rage or confusion. And we disconnect that. We disembody it from our faith. We think it's two different things so that when we walk in through these doors, perhaps, we throw those other things behind. We put on this smiley, parade parade-like face. And what it does is it disallows our faith to actually be right where we are. When Jesus, by coming to earth, what we call this incarnation, by taking on real flesh, real flesh that has pain, real flesh that actually suffers, real flesh that is sometimes confused or angry, he is showing us that we bring all of this to our faith. Several years ago, I talked in more detail about uh, the miscarriage that Megan had in between our first and second born. I believe it was a Thursday, I think, when we went to the doctor and we didn't know that anything was wrong. And so we, we went in and they couldn't find the heartbeat. 
So we went to another place to see if they could find the heartbeat. They couldn't find the heartbeat. And so that night, I can remember it very clearly. That night as we lay in bed, the baby was still inside of my wife. And I just remember kind of putting my head on her stomach and just whispering to the child, you know, we loved you. We love you. We know we don't ever get to know you, but we love you. And just weeping this unforeseen pain that would come upon us. A few days later on Saturday night, as I've shared, we had to go back into the hospital and because Megan was having some complications. And so we were there kind of late into the night. The next morning I had to go to worship. It was a small church, so there was nobody else to preach or to lead. And so I had to go and I, I, I just said, okay, come on, Jerry, just do this out of habit. Of course, I had no desire to be there. Let's just go. And, 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 and I did my best to leave uh, the grief and the pain and the confusion and yes, the anger at the door. And I came on inside and I do what we uh, pastors are supposed to do. I, I, I tried to have a face of joy and, and a face of peace and, a, and, and speak grace. And, 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 it, and it bought me about three or four minutes into the sermon. And then I just couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. And so right there in front of this small congregation, I just began to weep. I couldn't stop. Finally, when I was able to kind of breathe and you can imagine the congregation is wondering what in the world is happening Finally, I shared more than I had even expected to share and just kind of told them exactly what Megan and I were enduring, what we were, what we were going through. And it was without question one of the, the most difficult Sunday mornings of my life. But strangely enough, it was also perhaps the most beautiful service that I've ever been a part of because what I realized on that day was that I was not called to, 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 leave, to leave those pain, those questions, the anger at the door. I was called to bring in those things with me. And what, what stood out to me was the sanctuary that had always been a place of joy was also a sanctuary that could be a place of pain. The sanctuary that had always brought me a sense of peace, that it was also a sanctuary that could bring my confusion and my anger. You see, that, that all of those things are, in, are welcomed here. What I began to see, I think on that day, I wouldn't have put these words to it, but is that that trail, that day, that trail to Jerusalem, you know, that, that trail that walks through joy and celebration, but it's the trail that also goes to, to weeping and to, to mourning and even to, to anger and to, to rage, that that trail is not some trail that is thousands of miles away from us. It is a trail that goes through each and every one of our hearts. It is a trail that we are all on. And Luke 
And God invites us into and onto that particular trail. One of the things Scott Hosey says that kind of helped me to think through this is he said, you know what? We as pastors, we actually live this trail every Sunday. It's not just because sometimes, you know what, sometimes we have to stay, stand up here and there are times, I, I know maybe it'll surprise you, there are times when I just got done disciplining a child and now I have to come in here and be like, Jesus loves you. But also because of this, in those moments when I stand up here and we focus perhaps on grace, when I look out because I know so many of you that I have known the story that you have of how perhaps you are racked by guilt and your inability to even have grace for yourself because of what you have done in the past. And in those moments when I'm talking about love and I look out there, I can see you and oftentimes I can see the tears in your eyes because I've met with you in my office and I have seen the tears when you aren't sure, when you tell me my spouse no longer loves me or I don't know if I was ever really loved by a parent and I know that this story is your story. Or times when I'm supposed to be up here and talk about the peace of Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace. But when I look out there, I know that some of you, you don't want anyone to know, but you have told me or Pastor Scott, perhaps your body at that point is just beginning to be riddled by disease or you're concerned about a loss of a job or the fragility of a relationship. We see this trail. You see, all of us are on this trail together. Jesus understands that it is in the midst of the dirt, of the muck and the mire of our lives. Not when we clean all of that out and then everything is gonna be great. It's in the middle of that, that his tears, that our tears begin to fall. And it is out of that, that joy and peace and hope and grace can begin to blossom. Not in spite of those things, but in the very midst of it. This week, as I was thinking about this particular passage, my mind kept going back to a, to a hymn that is, if not my favorite, definitely in the top five. It's a hymn that I think, I've always thought this, is kind of a song of protest kind of a song of rebellion. Now, it doesn't sound like that. Oftentimes, it can sound a bit like a dirge, quite frankly. It can be too slow or it can, you know, if you just hear the music, you think, ah, oh, but it's actually this remarkable song of defiance. It is ferocious in its honesty, but it is also ferocious in its courage to say, this pain is not all that there is. And I actually didn't know that much about this song. Um, uh, it was uh, composed by uh, a guy named Horatio Spafford. And Horatio lived in the 19th century. He was very wealthy, but much of his wealth was in property in Chicago. So that the fire, the great fire of Chicago in 1871 set much of his finances aflame. Earlier in the year, his son had died of scarlet fever. 
A couple of years later, his family, the rest of his family, they wanted to try to get away for a while. They were going to take a boat across the Atlantic to go to England. And so they were all going to go. At the last moment, Horatio had to stay back. He was going to catch up with them. So the rest of the family went. The ship hit another boat and it sank. Over 200 people died, including, four, including his four daughters. His wife telegrammed back these simple words, saved alone, what shall I do? Spafford got on the next boat. And as he went across the Atlantic to go and to give a sense of peace to his wife, as they crossed over where the ships, where the ship had sunk, the captain told Horatio that this is exactly where it had sunk. And Horatio, at that very moment, penned the words to this song. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot Thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound. And the Lord shall descend. And even so, it is well with my soul. As our musicians come up now to sing this song to lead us, my hope is that we will hear this song as a song of protest, but also a song of incredible honesty. And that you will remember that it is in the midst of the dirt, the midst of the pain, of the fear, of the confusion, in which Jesus cries and it is out of those waters from his eyes where hope and peace can begin to bloom.